We come to you now, and I'm just uh, I'm thankful that um, you give us opportunity to gather each week uh, to engage your word, uh, to be engaged by the word, to have the spirit uh, that we might have any understanding. I pray, Lord, for a fruitful time tonight. I feel like we have a lot of ground to cover, uh, yet I don't want to rush anything, so I just pray that you would keep us in step with the spirit, and uh, we'll take the time we need where we need to take it. Lord, I pray that as we consider leadership that you appointed at different times, that we would learn what we need to learn um, from the differences and the similarities, um, from the good things and the bad things. Um, And uh, I pray that uh, ultimately our our time tonight would be uh, glorifying to you and edifying to one another. Pray that no corrupting talk would come out of our mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Uh, you are very, very good to us. Uh, we thank you for uh, the rain today. We thank you for the reminder that uh, our God is completely in charge of the weather and, uh, and uh, has the right to surprise us whenever he pleases. Um, we love you, Lord. Thank you for Jesus pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Samuel 2.2 is where our um, memory verse is. And so uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, each we're going through the Old Testament right now. Uh, Jeff Willingham spent the last two weeks teaching through Ruth. Uh, he did a phenomenal job. Um, if you weren't able to catch those studies, I encourage you to go online. Uh, they're all online and, and uh, a lot about friendship and uh, Hesed and all sorts of good stuff in Ruth that, that we covered for the last two weeks. And so um, it's not just a love story, turns out. Um, and so uh, go, go check that out if y'all didn't get to, to be a part of those studies. Um, so we're in 1 Samuel, and, and each time we go into a new book, we have memory verses. Our children are walking in the same memory verses that we're going to be walking in. Memory verses aren't just for children. Um, and then... Uh, each week, um, Clint has been writing songs to go along with this, um, and most children's music is horribly annoying and gets on your nerves and kind of just grits, and, and it um, turns out there's another way to do it, and, and Clint has figured that out, at least to some extent, so um, we're thankful for that. So y'all go on there. Um, is it Remember Sing on Facebook? And so they're all there, and um, it helps me to memorize the verses when I have a song. So um, uh, make use of that resource. First Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. I'm going to read it again. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. First Samuel essentially picks up where judges left off. Uh, Ruth was something that we engaged during that transition time, and you know, and as far as the canon of Scripture goes, that's where it is. But First Samuel picks up where the judges leave off, and now we're moving into the time of the kings for the for the history of Israel. And so, um, what we're going to look at uh, this week and next is faith and faithless times, and the leadership that God appoints, and what He shows us through that leadership. Um, I don't know if it's a book of eclectic leaders or an eclectic book of leaders, um, but we're going to look at Samuel, uh, who was a man of God's word, really just marked by obedience. And we're going to look at Saul, who was an impressive man, who was marked by self-reliance. 
And then we're going to look next week and maybe the week after. I don't know how many weeks we're going to take on it. We're going to look at David, who was um, impressed by God um, and marked by faith. And all of the leadership that we look at in Scripture points us to our God, who, who leads us uh, in a way that is beyond our understanding. So we're going to look at some different leadership portraits over the next couple of weeks. And uh, so opening question, um, what is important when it comes to leadership um, in general, and then when it comes to the church. Is it even something churches should talk about? Um, is leadership characteristics something that uh, churches should engage? So in general, what is important when it comes to leadership, and then particularly to the church? Ready, go. I'm casually eating a mint, throwing the trash away, while you excitedly rack your brain on that question. <clears throat> Does anybody in this room particularly care about leadership? Fantastic. Why? Okay. Without leaders, we go astray. All right. There you go. There you go. I'm, I'm about to let you just take over. That was phenomenal. It was so good. <laughs> we need leaders. What else? What's, what's important um, when it comes to leadership, just in general and then when it comes to the church? In general first. In general, what's important about leadership? Say it again. Guidance. They guide. Okay. Okay. In general, you will choose someone that you trust to lead where you're trying to get. That's good. <laughs> no, I, I, I thought it was rather clear. They have a goal in mind? Yeah, what was that, Henley? Yeah? I think Henley's on it. Yeah. It is God-given. What else in general? Humble. Wise. What about leadership in the church? What are some characteristics that are more necessary or maybe even not just necessary but non-negotiable in some some cases <laughs> qualified okay listen to god absolutely what else what yeah spiritual maturity absolutely lead by example yeah you can't just say that my dad always told us, growing up, do as I say, not as I do. He was kidding, though. No, it's not good leadership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Overcoming difficulty, to be able to lead by example, to, to set an example for the way we walk through difficulties. Yeah, that's Paul's explanation in Corinthians that there's spending and being spent, not just in any manner, but gladly on souls. That's a really important um, characteristic of leadership in the church. So um, all that taken into account is a pretty easy deal, right? Um, light, light fare for the night. We're going to look at Samuel first. The book um, opens up with the birth of Samuel, and I'm going to read a large portion of Scripture. When I was looking at how to start our study tonight, I thought, you know what? Uh, this is a fitting section to just read. So... I'm going to read 1-1 through 2-11. So 
Y'all buckle down. It's an entire chapter out loud. I think we can handle it. It'll only take about four minutes and 37 seconds, tops. Y'all ready? Fantastic, man, the, the, it's electric in here. Um, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, that's all right, should catch that, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahoamah, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Ephrathite, depends on which tongue you're part of. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. So what's weird about this so far? He has two wives. Good, we're all tracking. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. So see, see the stage that's being set. Climb in. Anytime we read this, import your senses. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What are the surrounding things going on? Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Now, who are we talking about here? Penaniah, her rival, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. That, that gives us some insight into the character of Penaniah. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Kind of a typical bonehead guy thing to say. Aren't I more important, babe? <laughs> Verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. and No razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart and only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, this is um, not a smooth move as a pastor. Um, the lady is mourning over childlessness, and he accuses her of being drunk. And um, Pastoring 101 says, Don't do that. Verse 15, But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that uh, he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, you live, my Lord. I am the woman, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. Listen to this prayer. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, and she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. So that's the birth of, of Samuel. Um, her account is a beautiful account, and I wanted to read all the way through it so that we could hear it and kind of climb into this. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. Do you remember, what, what were some of the things we saw in the book of Judges as we engaged that? What did we see over and over again? Corrupt judges, yeah. And so here we're coming to the end of the time of the judges, and we do so with Samuel. He's one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And this book contains his life story as well as the life story of a few others that we'll engage in a little while. Following this prayer, what we find is a really sad account of Eli's other sons, his wicked sons, or as the word says, his worthless sons, where they will soon die because of their wickedness. As it's stated in 225, it says, it was the will of the Lord 
to put them to death because they were so wicked. They were taking from the people. They were exacting more than they should. They were making the worship time more about themselves than they were about the Lord. And they weren't serving the people. Rather, they were inconveniencing the people. And it was worthlessness in the eyes of God. Then in chapter 3, we come to the famous story about the Lord speaking to Samuel. Do y'all remember studying this maybe when y'all were younger um, about the Lord speaking to Samuel? Look at uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli, and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and laid down again. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Why did Samuel not yet know the Lord? Maybe Eli wasn't doing his job. I mean, he can talk. Why else does Samuel maybe not know the Lord? Yeah. Here we see God calling out to him, and and he doesn't know what's happening. So Eli says, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived, slowly but surely, that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. This anxiousness to listen um, typifies Samuel's life. His eagerness to listen is kind of a mark that he, he becomes known by. His ministry occurs in the very dark days of Israel. And here you have this one who is, who is listening and, and is eager to listen. Um, what is anarchy? Do you all know what anarchy is? How did you define it? Say that again? Yeah, no, no recognition of authority or government, a state of um, disorder due to either, either leadership that doesn't exist or not a recognition of that leadership. What, we, what we're seeing during this time in Israel is that they're descending into moral anarchy. They're, they're not listening to leadership, and they're doing what they see fit, what is wise in their own eyes. And Proverbs over and over again says, wisdom is not found in your own eyes. Um, he who thinks he is wise is, is truly a fool if he thinks that's where it's found. And so moral anarchy is sort of setting in in Israel. And First Samuel more or less picks up where the judges leave off, as I said earlier, in the deep concern at hand is that the is not just that things are going wrong, but the worship of God is is looking to be going through a process of destruction. I mean, it's not just a matter of people doing wrong things; it's God's not being worshipped because they're living as they see fit, as opposed to what God has said. So, in chapter four of First Samuel, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. What does the Ark of the Covenant symbolize for the nation of Israel? Their covenant with God. What else does it symbolize? 
His presence, where he is, and what else? His presence and his holiness and his power. Yeah, yeah, this is um, the symbolism of God's presence and power with the people is, is taken um, by the Philistines. Um, it resided at the center of Israelite worship, and, and on that same day that it was taken, Eli and both of his sons, you remember his sons' names? Phineas and Hophni. Uh, they die on that same day. And it's almost as if, it almost looks like God is walking out on a really horribly corrupt nation. It's what it almost looks like. Now, let's continue looking. In chapter 6, the ark returns. In chapter 7, we see Samuel leading Israel in, a, in national repentance, um, away from idolatry, and at the same time, winning a really great victory against the Philistines. So turn to 1 Samuel 7. Verses 3 through 13. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. This is Samuel's message over and over and over and over again as he judges the nation of Israel. Put away the idols and listen to God and do what God says. And here, so many years later, it's the same message that we have to hear week in, week out, day in, day out. Put away the idols, listen to God, obey what he says. This is what Samuel's marked by. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth and they serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, we have sinned against the Lord. That's what you want to see when you call someone to that. You see repentance and you see confession. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Now, what song mentions Ebenezer? Come thou found. Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Up until this point, some of you may have thought it was referring to the character in the Christmas play. Um, it is capitalized in most of our slides. But what are we singing in that verse? 
When we say, according, according to what I just read, when we say, here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Put that in your own words. What are we saying when we say, here I raise my Ebenezer? Yeah, it's a confession. You've carried us through to this day, and we trust you to carry us through in the days to come. What else? How else would you say, here I raise my Ebenezer? Say that again. Your faith, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, some of us aren't very sentimental. Um, I, I lump myself into that probably, and I don't generally veer towards sentimentality. This is going beyond sentimentality. We're talking about a monument that you look at and you say, stone of help, my Lord is certain. He is with us. If I doubt that, I need to look at that thing. It's like writing something on your mirror or putting a post-it note somewhere or drawing a picture or, or writing a song to commemorate something or to, to capture something or, you know, there's a million ways to do it. But the purpose is that you look at that and you're reminded of the certainty of God's goodness. You're reminded of his help that he promises. And you're reminded of the call to obey as well. It's not just we just presume upon his kindness, but, but we repent and we confess and we call upon our God who is good to help us. So that's what we're singing when we say, here I raise my Ebenezer. We're saying we're no better than the Israelites. We're saying we need God desperately. We need, just as they had to face the Philistines who they could not conquer on their own strength, we need a God so that we can face the things each day that we cannot conquer on our own strength. So we're saying a whole lot when we say, here I raise my Ebenezer. We're putting a mark down, a memorial that marks the goodness of our God. In chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, as we kind of come to that close, the Ebenezer section, in chapter 8 we begin a new era of sorts for the nation of Israel. Look at 1 through 7 in chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. That is not the mark of a good judge, one who takes bribes, one who perverts justice. A good judge says, no matter what, no matter what I am offered, I will stand on what is right, and I will make sure that justice is promoted. These guys veered from that into selfish gain. It's part of the reason that one of the calls um, uh, to leadership in the church is not to be greedy for dishonest gain, because you're supposed to promote what is just and good and right in the eyes of the Lord, no matter what someone has to offer you. You're not to be swayed by worldly things, but rather as a good leader put in place by God, you're not greedy for dishonest gain. You're less interested in, in dishonest gain or anything related to it than you are the goodness of God and making sure that the justice of God is carried forth as you lead God's people. So here... It says they turned from that and took bribes and perverted justice. And in verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. You could imagine that they were not happy with the judges that were in place, guys that couldn't be trusted. Whoever had the most money essentially just won. And if you were one of those who didn't have the most money, you're going to think, well, this whole situation stinks. So they go. 
It says, all the leaders gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. That'd be a pretty heartbreaking thing to hear. You're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen closely. Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. In asking for a king, how is Israel rejecting God? Okay, saying his leadership isn't good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Not trusting God's design, not trusting God's leadership. How else are they rejecting God by asking for a king? Yeah. Yeah, walking, they're saying, I would much rather walk by sight than by faith. It's the equivalent of idolatry. Put something in front of me that I can see so that it's tangible and I know that it's good. And why would they want to have that king so that they could put their trust in what? The king. Why else? How else are are they rejecting God by asking for a king? What's their motivation in asking for a king? So that what? So that we can be like all the other nations. Now, what was Israel supposed to be? Set apart, completely different. Now, Samuel warns them about the dangers of having a king like the nations around them, and yet they persist. And in 822, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Have you ever considered that sometimes God will grant our very requests as part of his punishment of us? Y'all ever considered that? He will sometimes grant the very requests that we have asked, asked of him as part of our punishment. Can you think of any examples of this? Biblically, personally, if you're feeling vulnerable. Maybe just biblically, everyone goes. <laughs> yeah, quail. Oh, you want quail, huh? It's going to be coming out your nose. You're going to hate quail by the time this is done. You're never going to want to see a quail again. How else might God answer a prayer and and part of answering it? It's pretty complex. I mean, really think about what's going on here. The God of all creation, the God who spoke all things that are created into existence, who made all of his plans in infinite wisdom before any of this existed, before time, a created thing, was ever put into place, that God is answering a prayer and granting a request as part of punishment. I mean, this is a pretty, there's a lot of dynamics at play here. So what are some other ways we've seen that? Is there ways you've experienced it or things you've seen maybe in someone else's life that's not here?
even if we don't get an answer, we're all forced to sit here and think about times we've prayed for something. And God was like, okay, if that's what you want. It's interesting how our view um, of mankind really reflects our view of leadership structures. You know, we're looking at what's going on here. They're asking for a king. The time of the judges is coming to a close. They're rejecting God and asking for a king. Question for those who, who are members here and understand the leadership structure in place. How does our view, listen carefully, how does our view of mankind reflect our leadership structure within Crosspoint Fellowship? Say that again? We don't want to put everything in control of one single man's hand. I thought you said the opposite at first. I was like, uh, Jessica, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> um, we don't want to put complete control in one man's hands. Now, why is that? Accountability, checks and balances, and why would we need such a thing? Say that again? We are all flawed. Even the elders, how dare you? Just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, depravity is a pretty significant factor when it comes to what you desire in a leadership structure. Depravity and fallenness. Depravity and fallenness are two key factors when you're looking at leadership structures. So, why do we have elders? That's a seriously good place to start. I don't really know either, but God said to do it. Seems hard, cumbersome, inefficient. God told us to, okay? Why did he tell us to do that? Okay. I don't remember. I'm fallen. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, then why are there deacons? If there's elders, why are there deacons? That's, God, that's how God designed it. So we need to listen to what God says and do it, even if it doesn't make sense. If we believe that um, our view of mankind, depravity and fallenness of man, if we believe that, that we are fallen, that, that things were decisively different after the garden. If we believe that, then we're going to want to see authority diffused. We're going to want to see a diffusion of authority if we believe that man is not generally good. So I want you to hear what you're, I mean, I'm telling you, it doesn't matter who you are. You're not inherently good. Elder, deacon, church member, shepherd, small group shepherd, shepherd of family, child, even the newborns. Not just inherently good. We don't have just all this going for us, and it's like just just try to don't not screw it up at some point. That's not how it works. So, if we believe in depravity and fallenness, we're going to want to see authority diffused. But if we believe that we're inherently good, we're going to want to see like one guy in charge. 
Because we've got to find that one guy who's just going to be inherently good and he's not going to let us down. He's not going to fail us. He's not going to make any bad decisions. He's not going to lead us down the wrong path. He's not going to say something out of line. He's not going to trip. He's not going to put his foot in his mouth. And that's the guy we want to find and put him in charge. Well, that doesn't work. He's going to screw up at some point. And when he does that, it would be best for him not to be alone in the position that he's in. So if we believe in depravity and fallenness of man, plurality of wisdom is held in high regard. And even biblically, not just, it's not just good to have more, more people with wisdom, but biblically God blesses that in such a manner where the wisdom is greater than the sum of its parts. So you don't just have a handful of guys who might have some wisdom. You have a handful of guys who are blessed by God that when they come together and all that wisdom is communicated or or shared or maybe someone says something good and someone says something that's just dumb and the other people need to say that was dumb and you put that away and then you come back and you look at what's good and what you come up with is something that's much better than the sum of its parts. You got to work at it. Why? Because all all the guys doing that are fallen. They're depraved. Their hearts are deceitful. Paul Tripp talks about how we, our view of ourselves is not as accurate as we think. It's as accurate as a carnival mirror. And we need other people to hold up the word so that we can see ourselves for what we really are. It does not matter what you're doing, what your leadership role is, where you're at in life. If you're a Christian, that is your condition. If you're not a Christian, that is your condition. You need someone holding up the word so that you can have any understanding of where you're at and how you're moving. So... The thing that makes Samuel such a good leader is the fact that he does not trust the goodness of man. That makes Samuel a really good leader. He does not trust the goodness of man. Rather, he trusts the goodness of God. Samuel's life epitomizes the words that he speaks in chapter 15. Turn to chapter 15 with me. Look at verses 19 through 22. This is a, um, you can see the title of 15 is that the Lord rejects Saul. We haven't gotten to Saul yet, but there's some overlap here with um, Samuel, Saul, and David that we'll be sorting through in this week and some next week. But the Lord is rejecting Saul for a particular reason. Samuel is addressing that reason. And in verse 19, he says this, Samuel says to Saul, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Man, poor Samuel's just a broken record. Man, things are horrible. What's going on? Why didn't you obey God? Over and over again throughout the book. Man, things are going, can you lift up your voice to the Lord so he hears us? What's happening? We're all confused. Why didn't you obey God? Is what he just keeps saying over and over again. Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, Saul? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Now, that happens sometimes. You go to someone and say, why didn't you obey the Lord? Then they say, I did obey the Lord. But listen to what he says. I did obey the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But... Big but right there. The people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So what happened? What happened? Samuel, I did obey the Lord, but what happened? 
Yeah. And what, what role does Saul have there? He's a what? A, a leader, a king. I did what the Lord said. And all those things that were devoted to destruction, we, well, we, we took the, the best of those things. But we devoted them to the Lord. That is so, it's very, very self-serving. Very, very self-serving. It's like there was a bank robbery. They dropped some money. Here's $10,000. We're not supposed to, you know, the Lord could use that. That's been in the devil's hands long enough, you know. It's like this just, there's, it's so self-serving. That's what's going on here. It's self-serving. We took the, the best of the things devoted to destruction. Why were they devoted to destruction? God said. So we go back to what Samuel saying to Saul, why didn't you obey God? God said, devote those things to destruction, meaning don't leave any part of them to exist anymore. Wipe them out. And they said, well, we took the best of those things, and we're going to offer them to God, maybe put a few in our pocket. And Samuel said, so good. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Man, just think about decisions you're making right now. Think about, you know, the ins and outs of your life where you say, man, I want to make a good decision. I want to do this, but maybe, maybe... Maybe I could do this, and it would be a huge sacrifice, and the Lord would be pleased. Or maybe I could do this thing, and the Lord would still be pleased, but it'd really benefit me more. What's wisdom? I think surely wisdom's going to be over here. We, we, we have to be careful, because when we're listening to the Lord and aiming to obey the Lord, our first priority in that can't be what's best for me. There will be times where they, the devoted things, I mean, we're talking about sheep, oxen, and the best of the things, those, were, those could be good resources, right? But they were called not to take part in that because it was idolatry at its heart. So, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. What does Samuel mean by this? To obey is better than sacrifice. What does he mean? Yeah, the thing, the very thing you have to offer for sacrifice is a result of disobedience. It would be better that you obey than bring the sacrifice. Well, what is central to the way that Samuel lives? Obey. Listen and obey. I wish it could be that simple for all of us. Well, what should we do here? Well, the Lord said, don't do this and do this. Maybe we should do this. If we just stop there, just do what the Lord says, it would be smoother. It's not always obvious. Sometimes it takes a plurality of wisdom to come to that decision. But all too often we say, well, the Lord says don't do this, and the Lord says to do this. But there's got to be some middle ground. I mean, the reality is... We'll say things like, the reality is, you know, if, we, if we're going to be honest, this is going to hurt. This is going to be sacrifice. This won't be as beneficial to me. This will cost me something. This will cost me a friendship. This will cost me uh, a raise. This will cost me potentially my job. This will cost me my reputation. But Samuel's mantra, listen and obey. 
Listen and obey. Things are going well. Why not? Well, why didn't you listen to God? He does this over and over again. And here, he, this, this is sort of the statement that just symbolizes his life as to obey is better than sacrifice. He is given to hearing God's voice and telling it to others. His very name means God hears because God heard his mother's pleas. He's a man of prayer and a man of the word. He obeys God and he exhorts others to do the same. That is the sign of a really good leader. Obey God and in everything you do, exhort others to do the same thing. Set an example for them, proclaim it, live it out, encourage people to that, hold them accountable to it. Obey God. It's not, it's not all that complex. It's hard. It can be very difficult at times. It can seem too, like too much, but obey God and exhort others to do the same. Look at 12, 20 through 25. Turn back to just to pick up one more little satellite and then we'll close. Samuel said to the people, he's, he's the one who's judging Israel. He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. He's, he's engaging people who are doing lots of evil things, and he's saying, don't be afraid. You've done all this evil, but look, give your heart to the Lord. You wholeheartedly follow after God. Wholeheartedly listen to him. Wholeheartedly obey him. Serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, y'all who are moving in very evil things. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Both you and your king, the king that you asked for. Samuel is not a person who's saying, fear me. Fear me. I'm Samuel. Fear me. He's saying, the only way that I can lead is by saying, you have to fear the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, every bit of instruction and encouragement that I give to you is, is without benefit. Because you're not going to hear it for what it, what it is. You must fear the Lord over and over and over again. And he prays for those that he's leading because he wants them to fear the Lord and he wants them to listen to the Lord and he wants them to obey the Lord. And he, and he says in that very statement, I will instruct you in what's good. I want you to listen, but if you don't fear the Lord, you're not, you're not gonna actually listen to what I have to say because you might just see it coming from me and not the Lord. The typical fashion which Samuel exhorts the people to obedience, those were actually some of his last words Samuel characterizes some of the best things about godly leadership. And if we follow Samuel's example, we'll give ourselves to studying, praying through, and obeying God's word. Um, just consider, as y'all are leaving, the hurdles that get in the way of that and what you can do to safeguard against those hurdles. Um, as I was reading through this this week, I just kind of, I fell under heavy conviction, just the, the reality like, if we're not really intensely in, in touch with our Lord, we're, we're not going to leave the impact here that he wants us to leave. We're not going to bear his image rightly. I can't be like sort of remotely familiar with God and bear his image rightly. 
I have to be most familiar with God, more than I'm familiar with the culture, more than I'm familiar with even perceived needs of people around me. I have to be close to God if I'm going to bear that image. And so some of us need to hear, get back into the Word. Spend time in the Word. Uh, Two hours in the Word is not wasted time. Whatever it is that you didn't get to because of that time in the Word, it's okay. We have to have time in the Word. We have to have uninterrupted time with our Lord Not just reading to study and gain knowledge, but to engage and be engaged by our God, who by the power of the Spirit gives us insight and understanding that we can understand things and walk in them in a way that's pleasing to him. Samuel sets a really good example uh, for us in that. Next week, we're going to look at uh, Saul and and maybe touch on David some, and then then the following week, we'll probably finish that up and move on into 1 and 2 Kings. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time in uh, 1 Samuel tonight and just the example that you've given us in Samuel of someone who over and over again just exhorts others to, to follow his example and to listen and to obey. Lord, a lot of us are half-hearted in our obedience um, because we're half-hearted in how we're listening. We sort of engage the word. We sort of listen to things. We're horribly distracted. Lord, I want to confess in front of this whole room, I am horribly distracted as of late when it comes to meditating on the word and spending uninterrupted time with my God. So many things went out over that. Lord, I'm guilty of wanting to go home and spend the last two days in front of the television disengaging my mind or the last two hours of each day just disengaging my mind. It's not right. It's not good. I pray that I would be quickened and that anyone else who needs to hear it would be quickened to, to be careful, to remember that um, the days are evil, to remember that, that uh, we were to make the most of our time because it's very fleeting. You are great and you are greatly to be praised and I pray that we would live in such a manner. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.